Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. The Near Future Podcast, in partnership with Texas and SDGX. Welcome, everybody. I am really happy to have uh, Zoltan Isfan here with us today. Um, as we are sort of entering into this, this fourth digital transformation that's happening right now because of the pandemic, we've had a lot of talk about the transformation, new technologies, the convergence of technologies. But because of the pandemic, we've really been forced to get into it. I mean, working from home, working remotely, school, you name it, it's, it's impacted economies, it's impacted politics. Um, so we're moving into this and it's really exciting now to talk about transhumanism and what that actually means moving forward. So I'll hand off to Zoltan, if you can take a few minutes, introduce yourself, um, let us know what you're thinking these days. Sure, well, uh, as you've said, my name is Zoltan Ishwana. I'm basically an advocate for transhumanism, the social movement now of millions of people around the world that want to use science and technology to radically modify the human being and also to modify the uh, human experience. Anything from exoskeleton suits to brain implants to flying cars. I mean, you name it, whatever's the weirdest technology out there, those are the things that transhumanists are interested in. And what's happened is because of the coronavirus, as well as just kind of, you know, the microprocessor becoming so fast and technology evolving so quickly, is we're entering an age where humans can really start changing themselves through technology in very radical ways, in such ways that maybe even in 30, 40, 50 years, we will be hardly recognizable to ourselves. What do you, what do you think about, I mean, I was talking last week with someone in the age tech area, longevity tech, basically disrupting death, these types of things. And there's a lot of technology out of Taiwan, um, certainly the aging population in Japan and Korea is sort of having a lot of interest around this. Where do you think this is actually going to go? Is it going to create more consumer products, low tech, low volatility sort of consumer products, or is it actually going to lead to this concept of transhumanism? Well, I think to begin with, it'll probably create a lot of low tech stuff, stuff that the average consumer can purchase because I think in the end of the day, we are a capitalistic driven, you know, uh, a planet. People are trying to create innovation uh, so that they can, you know, feed their families, send their kids to college. So there's really a, a push out there, sort of like I would say transhumanism is sort of like the mobile phone where, you know, uh, you come up with a great idea and then all of a sudden the entire world embraces it. But it's truly not like something that I mean, yes, it transformed our lives, but maybe it's not what you're thinking of in terms of artificial hearts or robotic eyes. So I think when we start talking about transhumanism, what it's going to do first, we're going to have headsets that read brainwaves that we can take off at night. We're going to have um, maybe a lot of artificial iris scanning and stuff like that. We're going to have driverless cars and stuff, you know, AI, maybe even uh, lovers and things like that. It doesn't matter how weird or bizarre you want to get. Those are things that I think will happen. But that's not the kind of transhumanism that I'm really interested in, which is I would like to either upload myself and be shot out into space where I can maybe experience different types of, uh, you know, uh, solar systems, planets. I mean, the real transhumanist age is one that's either going to be digital or some kind of quantum mechanics, something that's truly far out there where we really aren't biological anymore. But I'd say the next 50 years, it's going to be a lot of consumer products relating to improving our biological framework. 
Well, we're getting close. I mean, when you start to look at maybe what Elon Musk is doing, but when you go into tel telepathy, when you go into where mind talking to minds, the ability to implant memories or to re or, or to sort of replace memories. I mean, this is in, in certainly in the area of neurocognitive psychology, neural mapping, these types of things. We're getting to that point, certainly in the research phase, right? Oh, th there's no doubt that we're there and we're, we're a lot further than I thought we would be if you just asked me 10 years ago. And I think that's classic is that we always are underestimating. Our, you know, we say, oh, we don't have flying cars here yet, so we must be technologically behind. But people forget that we have all sorts of things like telepathy where we can brain to brain, you know, interface. I mean, maybe in five years, you and I would be doing this conversation directly in our heads. And, and that's a very real possibility. If not five, then 10 years. So we are getting very close and there are some huge advances. And I think there'll be people on the frontier, especially the researchers who really truly take off, who, who maybe disappear into the void or into the mainframe or whatever it is. But I think the majority of, of, of people will probably you know, just be happy with uh, improvements that make their lives simpler, easier, maybe more functional. And I think, I think the, the, the impact on society, I think this is something that, that is starting now to become a bit of a conversation. Even on the simplest of technologies, when you look at social media, for example, that impact on society, Facebook, Amazon, Baidu, Alibaba here out in Asia, that has a big influence on society in the way that society thinks. Then you've got things like from the UN, my stint at the UN, you've got things like the sustainable development goals, all these sort of broad humanitarian goals. And I like this concept, this transhumanitarianism sort of concept I believe you coined a while back. Where do you think the impact on society beyond the commercial interests and beyond the individual interests, each of us having that opportunity to do something, but where do you think that societal impact is going to really either promote or not promote the concept of transhumanism? That's a big question. Well, I think transhumanitarian, <laughs> no, no, of course. And I'll, I'll try to you know, answer it as simply as I can, just because it is so big. But transhumanitarianism is really just when we're trying to use transhumanism to improve humanity as a whole. And I think that has a lot of different tentacles out there. I think the most important thing is people want to you know, start avoiding death or at least living dramatically longer. So that would be something that's really important. And that could either come through the different types of drugs they're creating or the, the, the gene editing therapies, or, you know, I mean, most people die from organ failure. So if you have an artificial heart or artificial lungs, I mean, the COVID crisis isn't mostly due to respiratory problems. So if we had an artificial lung, we could, uh, could have overcome coronavirus in a very different type of way very quickly. So I think, you know, when you talk about transhumanitarianism, we're going to try to look for medical realities that improve people's livelihood and make them live longer so that there's a lot less death in the world. And I'd say for me, that's the number one overarching concern. Um, younger people don't see death as too important because they're, they're not worried about it, but I'm you know, just turning 50 soon and um, I'm starting to worry about it. So I think uh, we get to that point when transhumanitarianism is really about making people live better and longer through radical transhumanist medical uh, technologies. And, and obviously this is something I think it's, I think it's really fantastic, especially when you get into sort of breaking down some of the technology divides, those that have and those that don't have, those that can afford and those that cannot afford. And it, and it brings up 
an article, I think you wrote in 2015 in Vibe. Um, what if one country achieves a singularity? And this is something that's interesting because we've seen it with other technologies, certainly with the internet, where it really started in North America, sort of came to Europe, and then slowly faded out to Africa and to Asia. And only now, 20 years after the fact, are we getting deep penetration here in Asia, as far as people getting online, having access to knowledge, having access to communities, to support, and these types of stuff to make their lives better. But with something as big as the concept of the singularity or transhumanitarianism, the ability of people to have better lives through technology, how do we avoid that one country gets ahead? Or how do we sort of make it so it's, it's a little more equal? Well, that's the tough part because what happens is capitalism makes it very competitive. And so it's sort of a dog eat dog world out there. And whoever gets there first gets the big pile of money. And that's what motivates a lot of technicians and engineers. And frankly, it's a, it's a, maybe it's an outdated system, but it's been a very functional system and, um, and it does get the job done. Now uh, I would say though, given the nature of the singularity, you know, this idea that we, we become a million times smarter than ourselves, you know, in a very quick time frame, maybe minutes, maybe hours. Um, the point of the story though, I think is that we, as a bunch of nations would want to come together because obviously to have one country reach the singularity, well, they could decide they have no use for the rest of us very quickly uh, and, uh, and just kind of wipe us out because of course they'd have such amazing technologies way beyond our own nuclear capabilities and things like that or virus technologies. In fact, I've written articles on AI and you know the, one of the key things about AI is whoever reaches the, the, the strongest and the best AI has a, has a real advantage because they may be able to send viruses out to the other AIs that aren't as smart. And we have the same issue with the singularity where we need to, it's more than just democracy, it's really seeing human, um, humanity as a whole. And you know, I'm hopeful, this doesn't go very well with my politics, and it doesn't win me any, many votes, but I'm hopeful that eventually we might structure more world government type stuff. And I, I'm not a big guy on government at all. In fact, I'm mostly libertarian, but I do believe that a universal set of uh, laws, universal set of voting parameters, universal set of democracy, the way we understand it, could be very useful in coming to terms with things like AI and the singularity in the future so that it doesn't somehow overtake us and end up a negative dystopian event for humanity rather than what could be a very, very positive one. Do you, th do you think there's a movement moving in that direction, more of a global sort of uh, movement, certainly out here in Asia or maybe into Africa, some of the other le uh, least developed or less developed countries, as far as their economics and, the pol and their politics are concerned. But do you think there is a bit of a movement? I don't know, is this something like for the World Economic Forum to push through? Is it something for the UN to push through in a multilateral sort of way? Do you get much well, I, ex exposure out in Asia? I think not so much yet in Asia, though, again, it's doing its amazing share of transhumanist technologies just because, as you know, we had talked earlier before the, the program started, that there's a sense that Asia doesn't have the isn't bogged down with regulations as much as the United States or especially the European Union is. And so as a result, Asia is developing in a to uh, the, the transhumanist zone of the world that I would say in terms of commercial products. And, and that's an amazing feat. And really, it's because government often gets in the way. But could we have a, a, a kind of a, a system, a universal values, maybe a world government, I hate to say that word, that word again, but something of that nature 
that <clears throat> makes it so all, everyone plays by the same rules when it comes to artificial intelligence. I mean, for the last, you know, 50 years, we've done a pretty good job with nuclear weaponry after, you know, a couple uh, mess ups, we sort of came together and said, wait a sec, we have a technology that's so powerful, we could kill ourselves, all of us. It doesn't make a difference who, who loses and who wins, we all lose. And I think artificial intelligence is somewhat similar in that sense that if we blow it with this um, and something goes wrong, it could go very, very wrong. And so it requires a global approach. It requires putting our ethnicities behind us, uh, our, our races behind us, our, 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 our you know, degrees behind us, any, everything behind us. It requires us coming together as just human beings and saying, we believe in something and we don't want to hurt ourselves because we have reached this amazing uh, state of affairs where we can create an intelligence that's far smarter than us, that we might merge with that intelligence. You know, I mean, that's the whole thing about the singularity is once you create an AI strong enough, you use brainwave technology to sort of become one with it. How can we make sure that that doesn't go the wrong way? And it really could. We've seen all the terrible Terminator movies. And I hate to say it, those movies are pretty, pretty good. You know, they, they, they show what the dark side can be like. But the thing is, how do we avoid that? I mean, if, if you look right now with this, the, the global dialogue around AI ethics, for example, and it seems to me that the, the, the dialogue around AI ethics is leading more towards defensive policy, what we should not be doing as opposed to progressive policy, what we really should be doing, promoted to reduce the inequalities, these different types of things. So everyone sort of gets a chance at this. So I think that's one part of this. The other part of it is being out here in Asia now for about 15 years, I'm really seeing a difference in mentality as far as taking on new types of innovation. I mean, you've got the wealth aggregation, you've got a lot of inherited wealth and the mindset of the West that's been around for 100, 150 years. But now with all this new wealth that's happening here in Asia, first generation, second generation, plus the advent of a lot of that wealth moving from the patriarch to the matriarch, a lot of women are managing wealth and they have different value systems out here. I think that the ability to take on new ideas, the ability to say, hey, let's try that, I think is a lot more easier out here because they don't have that sort of really deep infrastructure that's been built over the last hundred years in the West. So what do you think about progressive policy around this? Do you think there's a possibility and who, I mean, who, who are some of the people leading in this sort of area around really progressive policy around the convergence of new technologies, humanitarianism, um, coupled with AI, AI ethics, transhumanism? Sure. Well, and let me just say, I, I have uh, lived in Asia maybe four or five years of my life, uh, a year in Singapore, two years in Cambodia, uh, a mm -hmm. bunch of other places. So I, I did in Japan and some other places. So I've really, let me just say, first off, and hopefully I don't get myself in trouble, but uh, Asia is not a uh, Judeo-Christian religious culture. They don't have these boxes mm -hmm. on their belief systems. Their religions are very open-minded. If you can even call it religion, it's much more kind of a cultural way of life. And so when you talk about, a, you know, a, a Buddhist mentality is much more embracing of transhumanism than, uh, than uh, somebody in the Midwest of the United States who believes in Jesus, because they would say, oh, wait a sec, transhumanism goes against a Judeo-Christian God. Whereas in Asia, I think most of these ideas can very well mix and merge with their cultural belief systems. And especially then you turn it into, uh, you know, a little bit of capitalism and let's, let's make a, a living off this. 
it goes very well in Asia. And I really think that's why they've become probably the, what I would say, kind of soon to be ground zero for, for transhumanism as, as a movement in itself, because they just have a culture that is much more accepting of it. Um, and I think that's, a, <clears throat> that's really where it's probably going overall and where why, when you talk about progressive policies, I'm not even sure it's progressive. It might just be that they're more open-minded than people in the West when it comes to embracing technology in their bodies and in their lives. I mean, just touching on this again, and it is a provocative area. We all know this when we start talking about religion or theology, but culture is a big impact on the way people approach their lives, certainly towards the end of their lives. And what that concept, the meaning of death actually happens to be. And if transhumanism in some way, shape or form is gonna disrupt death, I mean, have you ever had a conversation with some of the leading, some of the some of the religious leaders about transhumanism? So it's funny we they tried to put, position me in debates with archbishops, and of course, the Vatican has mentioned me a few times in in different types of radio things, and and of course, I've done some of my articles for the New York Times. Uh, one big one that got a lot of attention was on artificial wombs, which is a mm-hmm. classic transhumanist technology and very challenging for the Catholic Church to embrace. And yet at the same time, through artificial wombs, you might be able to end, or at least uh, you know, end some abortions because people would then naturally give up children instead of aborting it into an artificial womb for adoption. And this is something that could change what is a very controversial issue in America that sometimes can decide presidencies and who you're voting for and stuff like that. So, um, you know, but I, I think I haven't, actually had direct one-on-one conversations because uh, it's it's more media attacks or media, you know, kind of inquiries uh, and going back and forth. And, uh, and it's funny, I do have a collection of all the times the Vatican has made a, a mention of some of my work just because we do try to go there. I mean, you, the Catholic Church is a billion people and Islam mm. in itself as well. Islam is another religion that's sort of coming around and all of a sudden they're saying, well, where, where does Islam play in the future of transhumanism? Maybe it's a little bit less strict than, um, you know, Christianity. And then you have Judaism. Judaism tends to be much more like Buddhism, where it's kind of like more embracing. So, you know, it really does depend on which culture it is. I wish I could have more conversations with these people, but a lot of um, at least the Abrahamic faiths would say that you cannot go transhumanism because then you lose your humanity. Whereas I would argue, you know, you can find much more of your humanity by living longer, by being healthier, by maybe embracing technologies. And maybe if there's a God out there, you can find that God through radical technologies. Maybe that was God's plan all along. And, but, you know, again, it's, it's so open for debate on how other people feel about it. Well, I think the aging population is, is real. I mean, we have that aging population and people are living longer through you know, med tech, health, health technologies and this, people are living longer. And the question is now, how do they sort of fit in society? In society where you tend to go to school, you tend to get a job, you tend to work for a bit, you tend to retire, and then you tend to pass away. And that's going to change. And that's going to have a huge impact on culture and society in general. And these are the type of things with the aging population discussion I was having last week was really, again, around this sort of age tech, longevity tech, how to make people live longer. The societal question is, what do you do with people when they do live longer? Especially when you start to look at from the bottom up, if people are gonna stay in their jobs longer, how do you create new jobs? Then you got automation, robotics, and this sort of cluster 
of technology coming at the same time, right? And you know, as wages go up and the cost of robotics come down, it's a mathematical equation. Sooner or later, there's going to be replacement. And I know you've discussed uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income, and this is, and uh, I can uh, I can honestly see that being transferable from a robot tax. So you create some sort of robot tax when you're replacing jobs, and that tax money is used to sort of fund a UBI scheme at the national levels or something like this. So it is a big impact on society coming in. But do you think that, you know, we're here at the near future lab, we're looking five, six years ahead, that that is really a tangible reaction over the next four, five, six years? Four, five, six years is a tough question. Uh, nine, 10, 11 years? Yes. I mean, in fact, just look in America, what's all of a sudden happened. <laughs> the government is giving out tons of money. Now there's a child tax that goes on for a year. I mean, this is a, this is a UBI experiment. And I am still a supporter of basic income. I'm, I'm not a supporter because I really want to give free money to people. That's not it at all. I, I like someone who wants to work for their living, whatnot. But I recognize the mathematical equation you brought up. You know, uh, the cost of robotics goes down, cost of labor is going up. At, it's just a matter of time before virtually everybody can get replaced. Uh, you know, I've been a longtime journalist and AI can now aggregate news. Uh, you can see the journalism industry doing this. They can complain all they want. But in the end of the day, these are businesses and, you know, people have to make their make the right, you know, financial decisions. So we're going to have to come up with a UBI that works off something like robotic tax. Uh, one of the ones that I try to push is the federal land dividend. We have a huge amount of empty federal land that can be monetized, that can help pay for the uh, land mm -hmm. tax. Uh, Andrew Yang has different versions he wants of that. I mean, it, it, and some people have cryptocurrency uh, uh, UBI versions, which I think are interesting, too. But whatever it is. You know, I, and I'm not sure how it's going to pass, but I do know one thing. It's probably going to have to pass at some point. Otherwise, you're going to have real anger on the streets. And that's what I'm worried about. The most important thing for the transhuman future is that it doesn't get disrupted by something negative like, um, OK, coronavirus might have actually in some strange way helped it because more and more people dedicate their resources to science. But it probably wouldn't be the same if a, if a super volcano went off or an asteroid hit the planet. We you know, transhumans just need a steady climb. Uh, they need the Moore's law of the microprocessor to continue to keep producing, even if it's not perfect. They need us to go 20, 30 more years into the future. And then we're going to come to a point when we probably do have various genetic editing techniques that make us live longer or even rejuvenate us and make us young again, or artificial organs out there that make us, you know, be able to all do marathons, whatever it is, the further we get down the road of technology, the longer and the better we're going to live. So what we need is peace on earth and a good economy. And um, I think um, in order to keep those things alive, the best way to do is as robots take over is to put forth some type of UBI because it will keep people happy rather than, you know, maybe demonstrating or putting violence on the street or, or just another revolution. Nobody needs another revolution right now, hopefully. I don't know about that. I would disagree. Well, <laughs> I would like to, I, I, I would like to, I would like to see another student revolution come in. Because we, I think we're at the point where sort of old school and new school are really having it out in the middle. And it's just not being discussed as much, but there is a lot of tension in the middle between the younger generation that sort of grew up with the technology, understand that their generation won't retire. I mean, my generation is probably the last to actually retire. I'll work for a certain amount of years and somebody, a government, a company, somebody will pay me money so I can do nothing for the rest of my life. That won't happen. Certainly, I've got three daughters. It's not going to happen with my daughters. 
I mean, they just won't have that opportunity. So the concept of lifelong learning, the concept of multiple jobs, not just simply one career, is really sort of shaking, but the old school is hanging on. And they're trying as much to do that. And I think a revolution or an evolution or a re-evolution or something of that nature, I think is, is probably going to happen at some point because the system's gonna break, I think. At, at a certain point, it just cannot continue the way it's going. And a lot of it now we're faced with, we got 10 years ahead of us with these major technologies. Internet disrupted enough, but that's relatively an unsophisticated technology. I lose my job within two weeks, I learn HTML. Within a month, I can start my own company, building websites, things like that can happen. But nowadays, you can't learn AI overnight or genomics or material science. You can't learn that overnight. So there's gonna be some sort of a shift, I think, happening. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, and, and look, if it's a student revolution and it's a good one that, yeah. that speeds the transhumanist movement, I'm all for it. Uh, what I just want is, and I have two daughters as well. My God, my, I have a seven-year-old and 10-year-old, and it's so funny because I have no idea what they're going to do. They say, oh, I want to go to college. And I'm like, sure, you go to college. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I wrote an article for Quartz about the idea that they're already trying, you know, like you said, with implanting memories. At some point, they're going to say, well, let's implant the entire PhD of a chemist in your head. Now, maybe it's 20, 30 years out still, but these are facts. At some point, it will be matrix style, I bet. And um, when we get there, that really does, uh, doesn't do much for the brick and mortar schools that are out there. And when I ran for governor in California, I was in a big debate with all the other candidates. Uh, and they asked, well, what do you feel about the California uh, college uh, university system? We have a pretty extensive one. And, um, and I said, I tried to lay this out 20 years in the future. So we should start preparing for this. Everyone looked at me like I was totally crazy without them realizing that in Silicon Valley, we already have hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into these technologies so that one day a Harvard degree or a Columbia degree can be downloaded for a fraction of the cost. Um, now, again, it could be 50 years out, even 80, 100 years out. But there, if people could do it in 10 years, they would do it. So it's something to consider. Well, I, I definitely think so in that sense. And I think, but I get, I get a question around when you look at biohacking right now, I mean, very just the primitive, the whole biohacking movement, is that really supporting transhumanism? Or is this sort of a fringe sort of area where they're just sort of exploring different? I, I wouldn't say it's fringe, but I would say it is the young people who are a bit wild. They don't have much academic basis to them. They're also kind of what I would say the real free spirited transhumanists out there. They're the ones saying, I want to cut off my arm and put on a robotic arm. I want to you put an implant. I would put an implant in my arm, in my hand that I use every day still. And while a lot of the academic and older transhumanists who are trying to overcome death don't see the fun or, or see the even the logic in little things like a chip implant, which is kind of a party trick. That doesn't do that much, you know. Um, there's still a sense that young people of the transhumanist movement are far more attracted to biohacking their bodies than they are to studying a PhD on longevity for 15 years, you know? And that's why biohacking is plays a very important part as kind of the, the, the frontier, the foreguard, you know, of sort of the transhumanist movement. I'd say that the biohackers are always carrying the, the flags right into the battleground kind of thing because they're doing the weirdest things. They're getting a lot of media attention and a lot of people learn about transhumanism through their actions. I mean, on, on one extent, I mean, they're almost the artists of transhumanism. They're doing the experimentation, very low cost, very low tech, but they're doing the experimentation right now. And they're taking those sort of leaps of faith, I guess, into that sort of area like an artist or a musician would to really sort of push the agenda. 
And honestly, when you look at major movements of the world, a lot of that is driven by the artist, whether it's a, whether it's a, a real artist, whether it's a musician or something like that. A lot of it is driven by the artist. And I think there's going to be a bit of a resurgence of the humanities, I think, or the art as we go. I really hope so anyways. To really start to understand where society, where it all sort of fits in as we start to look at something like transhumanism and where that will actually end up and the benefits of that. I see some of the issues with policy. I think policy will be a bit defensive and um, mainly because they don't understand. We've seen that the Senate committees, when they're sitting down with Zuckerberg, they still don't understand the Internet. So it's, it's going to be very difficult to write up policy when you start to look at genomics or AI or some of these other rather sophisticated concepts. So I think there's going to be some movement in there. And and, uh, and I like the Bible. I think it's interesting what they're trying to do. There will be some time maybe stepping over the cliff a little bit, but but I think that's what's going to push the agenda forward. Well, I can tell you when I run my political campaigns for transhumanism, it's biohackers 90% who are with me at demonstrations or on the bus or doing wacky things because they're the youth and they're the ones who want to get out there and actually do what we call street activism. And street activism is what makes the news. And that's how movements get born is through a lot of media recognition and, and, and telling the world about the stuff. And while academics might be responsible for a lot of the great uh, technologies that move forward, you know, it, it's, it's a movements are not just one sided. They have all sorts of different people involved. Sometimes it's the even, you know, I'm not a big fan of attorneys, but sometimes it's a bit, it's the attorneys who push the agenda the most forward because they'll try to take a law against chipping that was going to be outlawed in Nevada, and they'll go fight for that in the Nevada Supreme Court. And then all of a sudden, the world changes because of that. And the same thing with, you know, when it, with engineers, it's like, uh, it's amazing how many people we have that are interested in transhumanism that you think have nothing to do with it because they're not in science, and yet they're pushing this social movement very much forward. Do, do you have the opportunity to get out into oh. the research labs? I mean, you're out in California. But I mean, do you have the opportunity to get into some of the newer research and have those discussions? Um, I do. I'm not allowed to do that as a journalist, though. It's funny because I always <laughs> my editors always say, oh, write about what you just did. And I said, I, I can't because what happens, as you know, as being a technologist, is that everybody's so afraid of what they're working on getting out. So mm -hmm. while you might be able to talk about a concept, you rarely would uh, show it to anyone in the media. Because the last thing you want to know is your competitors know exactly what you're doing. That said, I often have a lot of off-the-record conversations, especially in the biotechnology field, where people like drugs and compounds, much more willing to talk about that stuff than I'd say hard tech. And uh, yeah, some of it's amazing. I mean, and there are so many dreamers out there. You go for uh, a three interviews, not just interviews, just <laughs> you go for three conversations in Silicon Valley and you come back enlightened because you hear the craziest things in the world that people are working on. Have you, have you, I mean, but have you ever thought about raising a transhumanist fund? You know, raising a couple hundred million and using that to invest in some of this technology? You know, I've been asked to be a part of that. And I've done it a few times in terms of helping. And, <clears throat> and I was recently helping with the XPRIZE and doing stuff like that. But honestly, my forte has sort of been more dealing with media and, um, using a political platform to spread transhumanism. And uh, I have a bunch of businesses on my own, but they're all boring real estate. They, they do pretty well, so I just kind of stick with it. But I have been on the boards of a couple of cryptocurrencies dealing specifically with longevity and whatnot. 
other people have come up now. There are a couple hundred million dollar funds out there. Almost mm -hmm. all of them, though, are, are tied to longevity and not to transhumanism, partially because transhumanism is so broad. You know, when you say transhumanism, do you mean, you know, what part do you mean? But longevity is much easier. Let's conquer death. Everyone can put a fund behind that. So I think there's two or three now hundred million dollar funds um, for long, behind longevity. Yeah, this is something interesting, especially around health tech and these types of things. And it does, it does have an impact, especially around when you start to look at what climate change and these types of efforts that are going on and what that's going to mean for humanity on one side, but also the ability for people to take care of themselves on the other side. And it's a really interesting thing. I've got a curious question. Do you think you would have a, if you had an opportunity to sit down with Noam Chomsky, do you think you would have a really interesting discussion? Oh, yeah, for sure. Firstly, because I've read many of his books. Uh, before I became more of the libertarian mind, said I was much more in line with Chomsky's thinking. And so I, I've, I've often, you know, studied, I was a philosophy student in school. So, uh, I, and so I have all these kind of relations in terms of what he has written. And I'd love to just sit down and talk to him in terms of implications of where he thinks transhumanism is going to go, and especially some of his social philosophies. So, yeah, and I, I've, I've, I've read many of his works. It'd be interesting. I'm glad, uh, there, there may be an opportunity to meet with, with Chomsky uh, on the podcast, but this, but this is something that I would ask him, is when you talk about manufacturing consent and how much influence that that had all the way up, when you talk to him as an intellectual, a philosopher in many regards, but highly ignored um, by, 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 by a lot of influential people to get the message across, and I'm curious of what he thinks about some of these concepts, about transhumanism, about the ability to live longer, have much more impact um, on society. And I think it'd be a fascinating discussion. Well, I do know he was on one um, transhumanist podcast, and he avoided a lot of the questions. In the same way a lot of politicians avoid questions of transhumanism, what happens is that <clears throat> it's really off topic, and you can easily offend somebody. I mean, it's hard to say anything nice about transhumanism if you're not familiar with it or into technology, because all of a sudden you're like, oh, you want to change the human race? What's wrong with the human race? And so all of a sudden, you know, and I think, you know, with Chomsky, when I watched this one interview of his in the Transhumanist podcast, he was um, very much like, we have much bigger fish to fry in terms of taking care of the people and getting, you know, equality across the board and things like that. Whereas transhumanists are sort of, I don't want to say selfish, but we're dreamers. We're looking for the next adventure. We're looking for the next, uh, you know, evolution of humanity. And um, we realize we don't have the tools to fix the world. We're not going to try to fix the world first. We're going to actually go and try to bring the future to us. And that's where a lot of people, doesn't even matter which political scale you're on, really, say, you know, transhumanists are very selfish people because they want to first transform themselves and take the humanity there, uh, you know, human race there, without actually worrying about the real life problems. And it's a good argument. I'm not going to disagree with them. But unfortunately, it's like you can't help everyone. So sometimes you got to pick and choose your battles. And I think as transhumanists have said, well, we're the people who move, try to move the world forward. There'll be plenty of other groups and social movements that, uh, you know, try to help. And that said, we always want to help. We also believe in, especially in terms of environmental impact, mm -hmm. I think transhumanism is going to do more for the environment than anything ever before. You know, we're we have friends who are trying to splice uh, plant DNA into their arms and things like that. And, you know, the photosynthesize. So there's no more, <laughs> no more eating of meat or cutting down of rainforest to raise cattle. I and mean, when you talk about what transhuman transhumanism can do, because we digitize the body, uh, we could really save the planet that way uh, just because 
humans aren't consuming everything anymore. They don't have to when they're 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 not so um, uh, I guess dependent on all sorts of other uh, entities, living entities, biological entities mm. out there. So there's a, there's a lot of that transhumanism can do, but in the front in the forefront, it doesn't do much for the homeless person on the street right now. And that's where I think a lot of people have issues with transhumanism. Yeah, I think that's a it's a bit of a struggle. Do we fix the do we fix the present or do we actually build a new future? And sometimes they just don't work together. You're so concentrated on one or the other that there's no pathway that goes from here to there. And this is sort of a bit of a, another bit of a conundrum. We're getting to the end of our time. So I just want to ask, what are you, what are you going to be doing the next couple of years? Any new books, any new movies? Is there any new movements you want to come out with? Oh, well, I'll tell you something. I'm not sure I'm supposed to announce this publicly yet, but I have something interesting that I'm going to be doing. Uh, I've been accepted to Oxford University to do a master's in uh, in ethics. And so I will be attending Oxford in October. So that's one of the first new things I'm going to be doing for the next two years. So I'll be studying philosophy kind of more in depth and trying to bring, uh, trying to establish a little bit more cr- credibility to, uh, you know, my, what I'm what I'm doing personally and trying to promote transhumanism and also just understanding more ethical issues about the future and stuff like that. So that's really where one of the things I'm doing, I, I'm putting together a box set I just got the seventh book of the, the box set book today. Uh, so I have having a big seven book box set come out. We have a documentary called Immortality or Bust um, mm-hmm. that came out. It's on Amazon Prime. Unfortunately, we're still working on the global rights. So I don't think it's out in Asia yet, but it is going there because we had one of the largest distributors pick it up. So um, we're doing a lot of things like that, but I'm, I'm not doing, um, not planning any political runs, which is the first time in a few years. So I, I'm just going to probably be doing some studying and writing books. Well, honestly, I hope we can continue this conversation, and I hope we can have a conversation when at least you're 100 years old and I'm a little older. Um, because I am, I mean, I, I want to see what's going to happen. I think the next 10, 20 years are going to be absolutely phenomenal. I think it's a great time to live. I think it's a great time to look to the future. I think there's a lot of great things. It's going to hurt some people. The future is going to hurt. Um, but I think the opportunity, and as you say, I mean, it's, it's a small nudge one way or the other that's going to make all the difference. And I think that nudging is going to happen over the next five, 10 years to see which direction actually things are going to happen. So I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it's a fantastic discussion. I think it's a valuable discussion. I don't think this is on the peripherals of a lot of things. I think this is a lot of time to the center. Um, it is a hard concept to, to, to gather in a lot of ways, but I think this is actually the way things are gonna actually start to work out. So excited about your book set, excited that you're gonna be uh, researching more and getting more into it. I'll leave the last statement up to you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I would just say for people <clears throat> that are a little bit skeptical or afraid of transhumanism, people have always been throughout history afraid of a new technology that came. I mean, it could have been fire the very first time uh, you know, our, our ancestors <laughs> discovered it. But these are things that really help move humanity forward. And I think when we get to 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the future, people are living a lot longer, a lot less people are dying. People are, you know, we have ways to fix the earth through technology, nanotechnology, whatnot. I think we're going to say, wow, you know, I'm really glad that people pushed during this time to try to get us there because um, we've made the world a better place and it's, it's safer and better and happier and healthier for everyone. Well, with that positive statement, I thank you very much and um, enjoyed our conversation. Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts.
The Near Future Podcast in partnership with Texas and SDGX.